Our first reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, beginning to read at verse 13 and continuing to chapter 53 to verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And our second reading is from Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their, work, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Uh, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, 
and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Thank you, Nick, for reading for us. I'm going to pray for us now as we turn to God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning, that you would help us to see your Son more clearly and to see ourselves more clearly too, and to love him all the more for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Tuesday, the 30th of January, 1649, so a little while ago now, uh, this country did something it had never done before and has never done since. We killed our king, Charles I. It happened on Whitehall in London. You can still go and see the very spot where it happened. Now, it goes without saying that he was a very controversial figure. But after that day, as the gravity of what had been done began to set in, Another trial began, this time a trial in the court of public opinion, no longer of Charles, but of everyone who had been involved in his death, the political leaders who had sentenced him, the crowd who had watched it happen, even the identity of the masked executioner who had swung the axe. Suddenly, it wasn't Charles who was on trial anymore. It was all those who had allowed it to happen. And we see something very similar in Mark chapter 15. On the surface, it looks like a trial of Jesus before Pilate. And in a sense, that is what it is. But dig a little deeper. And what we see is that what Mark's doing isn't showing us the trial of Jesus so much as putting on trial all those involved in his death. Showing us their hearts and with it their guilt. But it's not just intriguing history, because go a little deeper still, and we'll begin to recognize ourselves reflected in the picture Mark gives us. A few months ago, I was doing a little tidying in the attic, um, how I like to spend my time off, and I came across an old school photo. Uh, You know, one of the ones where you're all in rows and on kind of tiered staging. And I did the same thing that everyone does when they come across a photo like that. You look for yourself, don't you? And so I ran my finger along and found myself and then remembered why I keep it in the attic. Um, It's not a flattering picture. Apparently, no one had yet taught me how to do a quiff. Um, So I quickly stuffed it back away and walked out of the attic. We don't like to see unflattering pictures of ourselves. And so why would we want to spend any time looking at one this morning in Mark chapter 15? Because it's only as we find ourselves in this story that we'll see the utter beauty of Jesus and the extent of his love for all the world. And that is something worth seeing. And so come and look with me and see yourself and see your king in these verses. Mark gives us four profiles to consider, if you like, four mini trials of those there on the day. And the first is the religious leaders. 
They had questioned and condemned Jesus during the night. And now, verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. They schemed to rush all this through in the small hours to avoid scrutiny or the opportunity for resistance. They weren't interested in a fair trial. They wanted Jesus dead. The question that Pilate asked Jesus in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews, exposes that that was the very charge with which the religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him. You've got to deal with this one, Pilate. He's calling himself the king of the Jews. And it was a very clever accusation because in one sense, Jesus was calling himself that. They had asked him during the night, we see it in the last chapter, are you the Messiah? That is God's promised king. And Jesus said, I am. So they considered how they could spin that to Jesus' disadvantage and knew that Pilate, the Roman governor, would fear nothing more than a political rebel claiming to be the king of the Jews, come to free them from Roman occupation. So they accuse him of political rebellion, of insurrection. Now see their hypocrisy. They're accusing Jesus of rising up in rebellion against authority. But they're the ones guilty of insurrection because he is their king, their Messiah. And just a few minutes later, these religious leaders will stir up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas to them. Barabbas! Look at verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. The governor would annually pardon a prisoner, and they wanted to ensure that it couldn't be Jesus, so they told the crowd to shout for Barabbas. And what do we learn about this man, Barabbas? Verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. Pilate said to them, verse 9, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. So they called out for Barabbas, and it's though they were shouting, it's not Jesus we want, it's Barabbas we want. He's our man. Well, he's their man, all right. They had murder on their mind, and so they had a murderer released. They were rising up against their king and had an insurrectionist released. Barabbas was their man. He represented all that they were. Why all this murderous and rebellious scheming from the religious leaders? While Pilate saw what stood behind it all, verse 10, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. It was all self-interest. Jesus had criticized their fake religiosity with devastating accuracy, and they saw in him a threat to their authority, to the respect they craved, to their influence and power. And so they wanted him gone, out of the picture, out of their lives. The teachings of Jesus, or his claim to be our king and God, can still today look like a threat to our self-interest. We hold him at arm's length because we don't want him to change our lives. We like the power of independence from him. I can quickly think of people that I've known 
who have rejected Jesus because they didn't want him to have a say over a particular area of their lives or because they didn't want to accept they're a sinner in need of forgiveness. But I've done it too. Every time I've resisted the authority of Jesus because I've wanted to maintain my independence from him, my power over my life. When you're a Christian, it probably doesn't look like outright enmity towards Jesus. It's much more likely that quiet suppression of what you know he says about how you should live. It's like holding a beach ball under the surface of the swimming pool, desperately trying to keep it from popping up into your consciousness. Of course, Jesus never works against our self-interest. But when we don't trust him and reject his authority, we're behaving like those religious leaders did, wanting him silenced. Turn now to Pilate, the second figure that we see. The religious leaders had handed him over, handed Jesus over to him. And Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus gave a cryptic answer. You have said so, which we'll come back to later. And then it says, verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Amazed why? Because he knew Jesus was innocent. And he couldn't understand why he wouldn't defend himself against such spurious accusations. He could see the innocence of Jesus. We've already seen in verse 10, he knew it was out of self-interest the chief priest had handed him over. Moments later, when the crowd told Pilate to crucify Jesus, he replied, why? What crime has he committed? He knew Jesus was innocent. But what did he do? Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Again, we ask why. What heart lay behind that decision? Well, actually, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? He just wanted peace and quiet. He had a crowd shouting in his face and he just wanted an easy life. And it's obvious to see because we recognize it in ourselves so well, don't we? Don't you just want an easy life? I know I do. And in a culture where many have serious problems with the teachings of Jesus, it's so tempting to present a version of him that will satisfy the crowd. I was on a Zoom call just recently with someone considering joining us here at APC And they asked me about my views on a controversial area of Jesus' teaching. I knew what they wanted to hear. How tempting to downplay the clear teaching of Jesus to satisfy the crowd. On that occasion, I didn't. But I can think of times when I have. Some of you will be at work tomorrow in a context where sharing your belief in some of the teachings of Jesus could land you in front of HR or even lose you your job altogether. In those moments, the easy life looks tempting, doesn't it? Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd. Then we come to the crowd themselves. 
Here's what we see about them, verse 8. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. That is, annually issuing a pardon to a prisoner. Why did they do that? Well, surely at the urging of the chief priests. They were pulling the strings all the way along. Verse 11 again, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas. They were easily influenced, even unthinkingly so. They called for Jesus to be crucified and Pilate protested. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. They were unpersuaded by reason. They didn't want to hear it. They had made up their minds and would simply shout louder until no other view could be heard. The crowd just went along with the crowd. And how easy that is to do. Maybe you're hearing this and you're not yet a Christian. If that's you, thank you so much for joining us. You're always welcome. Can I gently challenge you? Do you know why you're not a Christian? Because I've, I've talked lots of times over the years about exactly this thing with people. What, you know, why don't you believe? What's the big thing that's holding you back? And sometimes I've got really considered and helpful responses from people who are clearly thinking things through. But honestly, more often than not, it's clear that people haven't really given serious thought to who Jesus was. Some say they don't think Jesus existed or that the Bible has been changed through the centuries like Chinese whispers or that science has disproved the existence of God. It's just what the crowd shouts. No historian seriously questions the existence of Jesus. The Bible hasn't been changed through the centuries. We have the documents to prove it. Science hasn't disproved God. It can't because it can't comment on spiritual things, only physical things. It's an impossible argument. These are just things the crowd shouts, but there's no reason behind it. Now, don't hear me saying that anyone who isn't a Christian is unthinking. That is certainly not the case. And Christians are just as prone to unthinkingly accepting what others say. But are you willing to respond to reason when you hear it? Unlike the crowd shouting at Pilate. If you are, would you think about joining our Christianity Explored course? It's happening over seven Thursday evenings from the 15th of April, 7.30 in the evening. We'll be meeting over Zoom, so you can do it in your gym jams if you want. And it's the perfect place to consider the evidence for who Jesus is and why he came and to ask your questions. Please join us for that. You can do that on the website. The crowd, they were easily swayed and simply followed the crowd. Then there are the soldiers. Pilate handed Jesus over to them, and it says, verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. A company, by the way, was a tenth of a legion. So it was about 600 soldiers. So 600 men gather around Jesus, and the scene that follows... Frankly, it should make us feel sick. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. 
And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They see Jesus as a joke. They mockingly call him king of the Jews, but fail to see that's exactly what he is. They press thick thorns into his head, drawing blood and screams of pain. They spit on him and beat him repeatedly round the head with a staff. They treat him like some character in a barbaric pantomime. As a Christian, I find it deeply distressing to read what they did to Jesus. It is a cruel and twisted irony that they dressed Jesus as a king, gave him a crown and bowed down to him in worship, but in jest, when they should have done so in earnest. People then, and still today, make light of Jesus because they simply don't recognize him for who he really is. It's a tragedy, and it's one that will distress us if we love Jesus and long for him to receive the honor and worship he deserves. We need to recognize him. And so, finally, let's turn and look at him. Amidst all the riotous noise of this passage is a silent, solitary man. He's passed passively around from the religious leaders to the pilots, to the mercy of the crowd, to the cruelty of the soldiers. But all the way, the thing we should notice is just how silent and solitary he is. Silent, that is, apart from two words there in verse two. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. I know that's four words in the original, it's two. Literally, he says, you say. It's a deliberately intriguing answer because, of course, Jesus really is the Messiah and therefore the king of the Jews. But he's not a revolutionary political leader in the way Pilate would fear and in the way the religious leaders were implying. So just those two little words, you say. But apart from them, he says nothing. And solitary because he is one man with the world against him. In verse one, it says the whole Sanhedrin were scheming against him. Then there's the crowd baying for his blood. And he was surrounded by the whole company of soldiers, some 600 men. We saw back in the garden of Gethsemane that everyone deserted him and fled. All his closest friends. What do we see when we look at this sorry figure, beaten, bloodied, lying in the dirt, utterly alone? Do you recognize him? The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before, we heard it read earlier in our service, said this of the coming Messiah. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Recognize him now? Do you recognize the king? And do you recognize yourself among those who condemned him? Mark shows us in these verses how Jesus was condemned by everyone. By the elites, whether the Jewish religious leaders or the Roman civil leader, and by the lowly, whether the Jewish crowd or the Roman soldiers. And that spread of people is intended to show us the comprehensive failure of humanity. This is what people do when they get their hands on the king. The trial of Jesus exposes the guilt of the world. It exposes not only the guilt of those who condemned him on that day 2,000 years ago, but also my guilt and yours. Because we share this human heart that rejects the king. Whether for self-interest or an easy life, whether because we unthinkingly follow the crowd or think him a trivial joke. The author C.S. Lewis says, it's as though we carry the nails in our pockets. It was our sin that condemned Jesus to the cross. We are all guilty of killing the king. It's just a case of whether we're seeing clearly enough to recognize ourselves among those who were there that day. Do you recognize the king? And do you recognize yourself among those who condemned him? Now, here's the good news. Yes, the death of Jesus proves our guilt, but it also provides our salvation. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, verse 5. What a God to use such unrivaled evil to bring about such unrivaled good. So my friend, recognize Jesus as your king and the one who forgives your sins. Repent of your treatment of him and resolve 
to no longer be ashamed of him. There are so many crowds and so much noise in these verses. Imagine yourself standing by as Jesus is surrounded by the Sanhedrin. And you're watching on. And then as the crowd calls for his death. And as the soldiers beat him, your eyes fixed all the time on this silent, solitary man. Do you not feel your heart drawn to him? Do you not want to, as it were, step out from among the crowd towards him? Perhaps slowly at first. To lay down your self-interest, to choose the uneasy life. To bow down and worship him in earnest, whatever the watching crowd may say. If we see who he is and what he's done for us, then amidst all the riotous noise, we will be consumed with him. The death of Jesus proves our guilt, but rejoice that it also provides our salvation if we recognize him as our Messiah King. Let's pray. Father, we want to hide our faces in shame as we consider what we as humanity did to your son. And as we begin to see reflections of ourselves and those who were there that day, it makes us feel sick. But we thank you that that wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't the whole story. But that in the midst of the ugliness of that day was the beauty of that silent, solitary man going to his death to save those who were killing him, to save us. We thank you for him. We pray that you would help us today and every day to fling ourselves on his mercy and be full of gratitude for his great and saving love. And help us to make this good news known to a world among whom so many don't recognize him for who he really is. We pray that in these villages in which we live, that many here would come to see that Jesus is their king too. And the one who has died for their sins. And may it be to his eternal glory. Amen.